Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. A clergy friend once told me a story about a dad who was out running errands with his daughter when a tiny voice from the car seat behind him said, Daddy, how much do you love me? The guy said, Oh, sweetie, I love you very, very much. I love you so much. The child wasn't satisfied and said, I know, Daddy, but how much do you love me? He said, well, I just told you, I I love you more than anything in the whole world. Mommy is the only person I love as much as I love you. No, Daddy. How much do you love me? The poor father was flummoxed until, by grace, he got this flash of insight and said, I love you eight. The girl got quiet for a moment and then just said, wow. Has it ever occurred to you that the ways we communicate or measure love are actually fairly arbitrary and empty of meaning in themselves? But we still need them, don't we? Humans have been attempting to volley their love from one soul to another across the great divides between us from time immemorial, whether it's a sonnet or a dozen roses or that silly term of endearment that no one but your beloved knows the meaning of. The means by which we communicate love have no more inherent value than the number eight. They might mean anything in a different context. But if they accomplish their task, we will look past them completely and see the person more clearly who used one to get his love through to us. Right? Even though the story of Jesus' encounter with the rich man appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Mercifully, it only appears in our lectionary during year B. So only once every three years does some poor preacher have to stand up here and try to explain how it is that Jesus doesn't really want you to sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow him. And that rich folk like us are really going to be able to pass through that needle's eye, lumbering camels that we are. I'm actually going to do my best not to tell you that I know Jesus isn't asking you to do just that. But I do want to read this story as a love story and see what happens to us when we do. But be warned, if we do it well, I don't think the story will be any less demanding. Love never is, I'm afraid. I think we need another frame for the story for a number of reasons. The first is that almost all of us read it with the mind of the rich man, right? We are right with him. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Or what do I need to do to please God? Or what do I need to do to be a good Christian or citizen or parent or friend? After all these centuries and the havoc Jesus wreaked on religion as humans thought they knew it, we can still think of the gospel in these ethical terms. What do I need to do to satisfy God's requirements and get the reward that awaits people who do? But there's evidence for reading the story as a love story hidden in plain view. Mark, as you well know, 
is one of the shortest of the Gospels by quite a bit. So he's usually pushing the plot urgently along, which means when he does pause to tell us, say, that the grass was green when the 5,000 were fed, or we should probably pay attention. Or when he interrupts Jesus' conversation with this rich man with stage directions and an emotion, these might not be superfluous details. So back to the story. The man runs up to Jesus as he's setting off on a journey and asks what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus says, well, you know the commandments, don't you? The man says, you bet I do, and I've kept all of them for my entire life. In other words, he's been on the performance-based religion track from day one, the be a good person and God will reward you for being a good person track, which is still, let's face it, all these centuries later, the approach to religion that gets the most press. And if you charge right ahead in the story, you're likely to read it as saying, yeah, the project here is to be really good, really, really good. In fact, God has upped the ethical ante by about a billion. Now you've got to sell everything you own and give it to the poor to please God and inherit eternal life. And for about 2,000 years, we Christians have been reading this story and basically slinking away guiltily like the rich man did. None of us but St. Francis and a handful of holy fools in the centuries since actually taking him at his word. But Mark didn't just charge ahead with the story. He stops and he tells us that after the man had told Jesus how religious he'd been since his youth, Jesus looked at him and Jesus loved him. And only then did Jesus invite the man to turn and walk away from everything that he'd acquired and everything that he had trusted to follow this Jesus into a different way of being alive. You see, I really do think this is a love story. It's just a sad one about how hard we can make it for love, even the love of God, to get through to us. It sounds a little blasphemous, but... I truly think that in his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, Jesus was showing us that the religion, even the one that formed him from his youth, the great Torah that shaped every aspect of Hebrew life, was his people's number eight. The practices and even the community that formed around them, they were not the point. They were meant to point beyond themselves to the God who loved them with a love their little minds could never fully comprehend. But when their attention got fixed on completing the requirements of the law as as if that's what made them deserving, well, what was meant to be means to communicate God's love became the very thing that got in its way. Maybe it's a little like this. If Ardell expressed her love for me next Valentine's Day by parking a brand new red Tesla with a bow on the hood in front of our house, I'd be thrilled. But she'll be the first to tell you that it's way too easy to imagine that our romantic candlelit dinner would just go cold while I was poring over the owner's manual and fiddling with all the gadgets on the, on the dashboard into the night. The thing meant to communicate the love can actually get in the way of that love when the beloved's attention is captured by the thing rather than by the lover, can't it? And make no mistake, 
The church can get, be what gets in the way of God's love too. William Vanston grew up in the north of England during the Great Depression. His father was a vicar of a parish that sat on the boundary between a desperately poor neighborhood and one that was relatively comfortable. Vanston remembers regular dinner conversations as a child in which his mother would relay some desperate need in the community and his father would go to parishioners who had the means to meet it. He decided to enter the priesthood himself, understanding the purpose of the church as as meeting these essential human needs in its community. After After ordination, he was assigned to an urban parish that would have looked very much like his father's back in the 1930s. But the world had changed after the war. The Depression had ended. The country's relative prosperity and a new network of social services meant that many of those needs the church used to meet were being met in other ways. Vanston didn't wish people were poorer, so the parish would still have a purpose. But the purpose had changed. Now it was the spiritual center of this community, supporting and connecting ordinary people in their everyday Christian lives through the sacraments and daily prayer and mutual service and more. The church still had an essential role, but it was very different from the Depression church that drew him to ordination. But then, while he was happily engaged in this ministry, his bishop called and assigned him to a suburb where a brand new church was being built. The building would be completed in six months' time, and as Vanston began visiting what would become his new community, his idea of the church's purpose was challenged again. No one in this new town, you see, even seemed to know a church was being built, nor did they seem to have any need for one. They were polite, but disinterested as they tended to their gardens, raised their children, made friends, and actually seemed to live happy, meaningful lives. There were no desperate needs, nor the need for a community center here. So what was the church's purpose now? Maybe, Vanston thought, the church's chief purpose has always been simply to give glory to God. But he was a little too honest and too truthful to be satisfied with that idea for long. He said, What kind of God's glory depends on the meager offerings of us ordinary churchgoers? Lovely as our choirs and our sermons and our potluck suppers may be. Vanston actually began to fall into a deep existential depression, wondering whether the world or whether God had any need for this institution he'd so loved and had given his life to for all these years. Then one day, Two teenage boys came to his office and asked if he had ideas about how they might keep busy during a short school break. Without thinking much, he suggested they build a model waterfall they'd all visited recently in Ireland uh, out of stones and twigs and plaster and paint. The boys shrugged and decided what the heck, they'll give it a go. To his surprise, Vanston watched these two boys become increasingly absorbed in the task over the next few days. So absorbed that they'd lose track of time altogether, forget to stop for meals as they gathered up these sticks from the gutter and debated what paint mixture best looked like moss. The model itself was actually anything but beautiful, and the boys were hardly skilled sculptors. 
But the only word Vanston had for what the boys were pouring into their foolish little project was love. And that's when all his visions of what the church is supposed to be turned entirely inside out. He saw that the church is that model waterfall, whatever form it takes on in any particular place and time. The church has no value in and of itself. Its value, like that of creation and of every human life, comes from the love of God that is poured out so completely onto it. Not because it's made itself worthy of that love by completing some requirement, but because the, the God of love's nature is to love. And that, beloved people, is why I think it's so essential to see that Jesus loved the rich man who came to him looking for eternal life one day. Not with a vague, I love everybody because it's in the second person of the Trinity's job description kind of love, but a specific personal love. He looked at this particular man on this particular day and loved him for who he in particular happens to be. Loved him before he'd done anything or not done anything Jesus would go on to tell him to do. The love for him was alive and in the world already. All Jesus wanted for this particular man to get rid of was anything that kept him from seeing the divine love that was trained so intently on him. All he wants us to be rid of is absolutely everything in our lives that keeps us from seeing that the very same love is trained just as intently on each one of us. Amen. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.